Hello, welcome to another episode of the Clare Valley Podcast, keeping you informed on the latest council news, upcoming projects, local events and hidden gems in the Clare and Gilbert Valleys council area. I'm your host, Annabelle Homer. In this episode, we'll take a look at the role of peak bodies, the community groups who drive change, pitch for projects, apply for grants, make stuff happen in your town to boost community morale and tourism. Over the next couple of months, you're going to meet some of the people who volunteer in these peak bodies and what projects they've driven. Today, we'll head to Saddleworth. If people want something to happen within the town, the best form is come to peak body and, and obviously be prepared to get onto the committee to actually help drive that project. If you've got a project or an interest, by all means, put it forward. But be prepared to help actually drive the project too. Some people have had some great ideas come forward. Need someone to drive it. Also, our hidden gem this month is the very well-respected and super-talented artist Robert Alfie Hannaford. When Dodd Bradman, he said he wanted to get a young artist from South Australia because he's living here to paint him and my name was, he came up and contacted me and wanted me to paint his portrait so the prestige of that I suppose led to other commissions. But first let's check in on the latest council news coming out of the Clare and Gilbert Valley's council headquarters. I caught up with CEO Dr Helen MacDonald where the tenure of the Riesling Trail is up for discussion. Yes, the state government approached council administration 12 months ago uh, but then went away and have come back more recently with a proposal for council to lease a major part of the Riesling Trail from Barinya to the northern side of Auburn where the trail crosses the Horrocks Highway. And there's some 111 parcels of land in that whole trail, length of the trail. So why is the state government wanting local government to take over the tenure? Um, Well, that's a bit of a mystery um, to us because um, we had asked the public servants who have been discussing the matter with us what was the motivation for this. I have to say we haven't had a clear answer, but I have my suspicions it may have something to do with a bit of cost shifting, particularly with respect to native title compensation. So potentially if you take over the lease, local government could be liable to pay this compensation? Exactly, yes. It could be moved from the state government to the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council, yes. And how much money are we talking? It's probably in the hundreds of thousands of dollars of compensation. Is council at this particular time interested in taking over the lease or not? Uh, no, and I think I think the interest would have not been there regardless of whether there was native title compensation risks associated with the lease. I think the general view of councillors that while it's an asset for the district, it's not and has never been the responsibility of the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. It was a project that was initiated by members of the local community who have since been responsible for looking after and maintaining that trail, working closely, obviously, with the state government, in particular the Department of Infrastructure and Transport and Crown Lands. If you did take over the lease, you would still have to deal with the state government over any major developments on the Riesling Trail. Um, that's my understanding, yes, is that essentially it's introducing another party or a third party into the the chain of communication between the Riesling Trail Committee and the state government. So it only seems to be a, a mechanism for delaying decisions, really. 
the introduction of impounded dog fees for the Clare and Gilbert Valleys area. What's involved in this process? Well, this was actually suggested by one of our elected members in a recent meeting uh, that council doesn't have any fees for impounding its dogs um, or when we collect a dog that's either wandering or attack, caught for attack or whatever and we have to keep it in the pound. It's done so at the cost of all other ratepayers, which seems a little unfair that that should occur. And so administration was instructed to go away and do some investigation about fees. So obviously we did a bit of a survey of other councils to see uh, how other councils managed it. And so council then decided last night that it would introduce fees for impounding dogs so there'd be an upfront charge of $60 per dog if a dog had to go into the pound and then a a daily charge of $20 for every day that the dog needed to be in the pound. And basically if they also added on to the resolution that if people don't pay these fees then that would turn into an expiation notice. Is there an issue in the Clearing Gilbert Valleys area when it comes to dogs and impounding dogs? It's not significant, but certainly we have had dogs who uh, are long-term residents of the pound or regular residents as well. And so it's partly another mechanism to encourage owners to better manage and control their dogs. You know, from time to time we have a a few little dogs that escape their owners and they end up in the office for an hour or two and generally entertain staff. And for those kinds of situations, we won't be charging. So it's repeat offenders. Exactly. It's those that really aren't managing their dogs appropriately. The new impounded dog fees will come into force in the new financial year. Community land management plans, we were introduced to these plans during the discussions of the Catford Gardens and the the lease of the Clare Caravan Park. There's moves now to renew some of these plans? Um, Yes, well actually all of them need to be reviewed and, and updated, all 104 or something of them. There's a large, large number, that's how much community land that council has. Obviously it's a staged process by administration to update these very outdated plans. There was a raft of them introduced at the last council meeting and there's several of them which have major changes. So if in the update process there's no significant changes then it's just an update and they will be placed on the website and so that people can see them. But where there is change, significant changes to the community land management plan then uh, we need to go out for community consultation. So, for example, the Clare Caravan Park is one of those, as does the Maynard Reserve and Dog Park. That's changed. It's so old, I think it, there's no longer a swimming pool there. This is how out of date they are. Community land management plans have, um, re- in recent times, got one or two councils into strife because the plan has been outdated with work that the councils wanted to do. I think it was Charles Sturt Council ended up in court because of uh, work they'd done which was not covered by the community land management plan. Obviously, all councils now are a little bit more wary about the community land management plans and, and ensuring the content of them actually are consistent with what the community expects or, or how council anticipates maintaining that. Major projects. We're coming to the end of the current financial year. Are all the major projects on track? Yes, pretty much. Uh, I think everything that Council said that it would get done this financial year 
will be done, assuming that we don't have too much bad weather for the next few weeks. Uh, One of the projects that will run over into July is the Riverton footpath. We're doing some work in the main street there, which will take a little bit longer. There's been a few delays just because of weather. We've had a state election, we've had a federal election, and we're going for a trifecta this year with now the local government elections happening at the end of the year. What's the process involved with that, just briefly? Well... Uh, here at a local level. Yeah, at the local level. Well, council will go into caretaker mode at the very beginning of September. And obviously, we'd love people to start thinking about putting their hand up to be a councillor. And we encourage them, if they are thinking about it, to attend a council meeting, just so they have a sense of what they might be getting themselves in for. How many positions are up for election on council? Claremont Gilbert Valley Council has nine councillors and a mayor. So all positions will be open. Some elected mem- current elected members that have no intention of standing again. There's others that I'm sure will be standing again. So generally what happens is that you'll get a mix of some that have served for many councils before and we'll get some new ones as well, I'm sure. Have you had any interest, people coming up to you saying they're interested in running? Oh, yes, I have. I've had people tell me that they're going to run for mayor. I haven't had anybody say that they're thinking about standing for council. I often suggest that people should put their hand up and run for council, especially if they show a great deal of interest or have a lot to say. You know, I suggest, well, you can actually get in there and and make a change if, if you are interested. Do councillors get paid? Yes, they do. It, it's set by the state government and it's dependent on the size of the council. So elected members in the, this particular area, how much do they get paid? It's like a stipend. I think it's about $14,000. Dr Helen McDonald, Chief Executive of the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. wonder who was behind the idea of putting a new bike rack on the main street? Who fundraised and got grant funding to do up the local hall or institute? Or pushed for more rainwater tanks at the local oval? These are just a handful of examples of what peak bodies have achieved to progress a town and boost community morale and tourism. There are 13 peak bodies in the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council area, so there's one in every town but Clare. They play an important role as they are the figurehead of each community. They drive change. They push for projects, apply for grants on behalf of their community. What's their link with council? Well, each peak body receives $6,000 from council each year to assist them in their projects. And that funding has just been increased in the latest budget. This month, we're heading to Saddleworth. Adrian Norse is the Vice Chair of the Saddleworth District Community Association and has been involved with the local peak body for 10 years. He's passionate about his community, in particular Bean Hill Park, which was developed in the same spot where the town's local shop once stood before it tragically burned to the ground six years ago. This was a major project for peak body and is very close to the hearts of many people in, in the community. I caught up with Adrian to firstly find out how the small town of Saddleworth is travelling. Yeah, look, it's like every every small community. We've had our setbacks. Um, you lose your banks. You don't get the throughput of people like you used to with, you know, your stock agents and your teachers and stuff like that nowadays. Because your teachers nowadays, they might live here but travel to Barra to work and stuff like that. So you just don't get that throughput of people like that nowadays. And that's, I suppose it's disappointing for a lot of small towns. And obviously the impact of losing our shop 
here, that was the critical point in the town. So, of course, that was a focal point, you know, for, for people to meet and stuff like that. You're so, talking about a grocery store? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what we lost. So that's that's currently on the spot where we're actually sitting here right now. We're sitting at Bean Hill Park. Yep. It looks relatively new, the setup. It's It's been a project over the last few years. We're sort of, you know, a couple of years or so, two, three years we've been working on and doing it in little stages as we as we can afford it and and obviously volunteer commitments and stuff like that. So Because yeah. you've got a shelter, you've got some picnic tables, yep. you've got a manicured lawn yep. and it's all been uh, landscaped. It looks really beautiful. Yep. But why did you s- decide to put a park in the spot where the shop used to be? Obviously the buildings that were here was the shop and then there was a two-storey building here that was actually the RSL building as well. The name Bean Hill originates from the actual building itself. That was the original shop. So you can obviously see on the wall here the, the pictures that depict that old building and stuff like that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so when the land became available, our peak body decided to perhaps buy the land. Rather than see the land, somebody buy it and it ended up just growing weeds in the centre of the town. So we sort of decided to buy the land and, and create a focal point in the town. And obviously, you know, it's good for visitors to stop off and people have, have their picnic lunches and stuff like that here. And yeah, that's the main reason why we did it. And no one wanted to rebuild and put another shop up. No, and, and obviously if you had the actual structure of the building there, someone could walk in and get it up and going. You know, if the people just walk away from a business and leave the shell there, obviously you've got something. But nowadays to build a building and, and things like that, you know, you're probably talking a million dollars by the time you, you build something and fridges and freezers and all those sorts of things. So who's going to do that in a small town? It would have been devastating at the time. Yeah, it was. It was very frustrating. And obviously, you know, there was a town meeting within the week of it burning down and the owners said, yes, they were going to build something bigger and better, brighter and everything else like that. But it was all talk at the time, I suppose. And um, once the insurance payout came out, they, <laughs> they probably thought that was an easier option. <laughs> Our first thing as peak body, once the shop burnt down, was obviously the post office because it it combined the post office as well. We had discussions with Australia Post straight away to get something happening as far as the post office because we didn't want to lose the post office in the town as well. Australia Post were good and, and we got something happening straight away with that. So so you've got federal government funding, you've got obviously state funding. Yep. And council obviously helped us yep. as well. So And there was also some of the drought stimulus funding. We, we accessed some of that as well. So how much money altogether did it cost? All up here, sixty, $70,000 spent. We ran a movie night here one night. So it's got the aspect that we're going to do things like that as well with the park here too. So you get money from council, but do you fundraise mostly? Yeah, we fundraise as well. The little op shop that's just down the road, that's actually controlled by Peak Body. So that originally was set up as a, as a country carers op shop and country carers wanted to give it away. So a couple of the ladies that were volunteers, they came to Peak Body and asked about whether we would take it on under our insurance umbrella. So we did that and... And so all the money that's raised from that op shop comes back to the community. Mm. So the likes of the table setting over there and, and the horse and things like that, that's all been donated through the op shop. It's a great, great little op shop and, yeah, the ladies that are working there, you know, volunteering, they do a great job. So how much money do you raise on an annual basis? You know, the op shop alone, they probably bring in 20 grand or so a year. You know, peak body ourselves, we don't have fundraisers such as like sausage chisels or anything like that. We'll apply for grants and, and things like that if we've got a project coming up. Uh, and obviously, we've got a grant from FRR, which is the, the federal, government. federal government. So that helped us put the shelter shed up here. What's on the cards for 2022, 2023 for Saddleworth? Yeah, well, there's still a couple of little things to do here at the moment. There's going to be like a bit of a play area at the back with, you know, 
timber, logs and things like that. Like sort a of. nature play. Yeah, game. nature play. That's the that's the one. Yeah, so that's that's going to be sort of done. Our caravan park's only a small little caravan park, but it's unbelievable how many people come through. And the feedback we get is unbelievable. And we purchased a cabin up there four years ago. And since we've put that cabin in, the demand for it's unbelievable. So our next key thing up there is, is to get a second cabin. And that's sort of what we're working so on. So why is the demand unbelievable? Tradies looking for somewhere to stay, obviously, when they're working in the district. But it's also people travelling through. And, and a lot more people nowadays are staying in the little towns rather than the big big places. And and that's the feedback you get from people travelling. It's a bit of a hidden gem. You know, people come here and, and think, wow, I never thought this place was like this. Uh, it's a central place as well because from here, you know, you're 40 minutes to the Brosser. You're half out of Clare. And, and people love that fact that, they can base themselves somewhere and just shoot up to Clare or Mintero or anywhere like that. And that's, that's probably our next, next key, key thing is to try and get a second cabin. The peak body obviously plays a major role in this community. For it to run effectively, you need volunteers. To get more volunteers involved, what do you think needs to happen? Well, obviously, if people want something to happen within the town, the best form is come to peak body and, and obviously be prepared to get onto the committee to actually help drive that project. If you've got a project or an interest, by all means, put it forward. But be prepared to help actually drive the project too. Some people have had some great ideas come forward. Need someone to drive it, you know. And and obviously, we've got our hands full at Peak Body currently with the projects we've got on board at the moment. So it's also about that next generation stepping up and taking over. And, you know, old buggers like me jumping out the way. Not that I'm, I'm only 57, but I mean... So I sort You'll of be on pig body for a lot longer than yeah, you. Yeah, well, I've sort of tried to wean myself off, obviously, by being vice chairman. And 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 Hannah, the new chairperson, she's doing a great job. So that that's good. And and she's a bit younger, so that's that's good to get somebody like that involved too. Adrian Norse, the vice chair of the Saddleworth District Community Association. The relationship between council and these peak bodies is vital to keeping council in touch with these towns and assisting with future projects. Here's more from Andrew Christensen, the Council's Director of Development and Community. I would say um, councils touch points into the community. So when we try to provide information or um, get questions about what people think, we would first and foremost discuss it directly with them and then they can put it out through their membership and through their towns. I think they're really our, our go-to, I suppose, when we want to directly contact the community. So. What's the main request that you get from peak bodies? We don't get huge amounts of requests, but they might be a particular project that they would like assistance with. For example, in terms of they want to know about grants that and how to apply for them and how to do that, and that's something that Judy would be involved in. The main grant that Council rolls out is the Community Asset Grant, which is actually being released next month, so there's a little bit of a plug for people to be aware <laughs> They can go up to $10,000 for that and most peak bodies um, actually apply for that. We use our intel with them to go, oh, well, this is what we know that they're going to, oh, are you aware of this? So we kind of work together in, in that regard. Funding-wise, you mentioned they get $6,000 per body? Per body per annum. Is there going to be an increase in funding in the next financial year? Yes. Yeah, so um, basically we've got $13,000 increase in the peak body funding. The way that's split up is basically there's 13 peak bodies and therefore it's been $1,000 increase per peak body. That being said, councils asked us to look at how that is best distributed because by way of example, some peak bodies struggle actually to spend all their $6,000 while other peak bodies could have 
50,000, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> we're actually identifying, you know, where where the greatest needs are per peak body and then we might distribute it up a little bit differently. So someone might get seven and a half grand and someone might get six and a half grand, you know, depending on what it is. But we haven't yet determined what that will look like yet. But overall there is an increase, which is a good thing because it hasn't been increased for about at least four years now. So And it's on par with other what other Similar bodies are getting in other council areas? Well, so other council areas, a lot of them don't get any financial support at all. So uh, that's that's actually probably more unusual. Uh, the way the system works here is actually really quite effective. They are really peak bodies for the town and they seem to be more or less respected by the townsfolk as well as that as that as that's their community voice. I mean, not everyone agrees with what the community voice actually is, but that's normal in any sort of community organisation. But but I think the funding and the support that council provides them, and I think they do take it seriously as well because they, they meet every month from memory. Some do some really amazing projects. And then on top of that, they actually, part of the deal of the money is that they have to do a presentation to council every 12 months. So, and that's usually done in February. It's really enlightening when you get those presentations about all the community projects that they've got on the go at the moment. So, When you've got groups that can't spend the money or don't spend the money, what's their reasoning? It would probably be more of an issue with the sm- really small communities, you know, like the places like, uh, you know, Stockport or Maribor or something like that, that really, you know, they only probably have about 100 or so residents. What you can do and what we've been saying is that, look, you don't have to spend $6,000 every year. You can actually accumulate that funding over a period of time and then you can use it on a bigger project. Manure, for example, they actually held over some money over a period of time because they wanted to do one of their parking bays down there, which they've done improvements over time. And I know Stockport are looking at holding some money as well for a bigger project down there. Judy Giles is the Council's Community Development Coordinator who works very closely with the peak bodies. She's only been in the role for five months but has hit the ground running. So what are they doing in Stockport? They're looking at doing some upgrades to their oval. So their two main things down there is their recreation park and also their institute. So the institute was flooded, as they keep saying, back in 2010. So they had um, had to do some rectification work on that. Actually also incredible when the pinery fires came through and they've got a map of how it just went around the town of Stockport. So they're looking at doing things to just improve, making that more accessible not only to community but hopefully to any tourists that come through. On face value, how are the peak bodies travelling? To you, I mean, is there enough volunteers? Are they are they strong little organisations? What's your take? They're all very different. Not one of them are the same. They've got different needs. Um, if I can just say, I was recently at the uh, Rynee Peak Body meeting, and one of their biggest concerns is communication within the town because there is no phone signal there, and people don't have letterboxes and they had a number of people who were on the peak body leave and they can't get to the new people quickly or effectively to see if they would be interested in joining. So I'm working with them to help um, with their communication strategies. So it's, it's things like that, that uh, there are individual things that happen within the communities that mm. I help support. Yeah, mm. so it's good. Judy Giles, the Community Development Coordinator at the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council.
In the next episode, we'll head to Mintero and Watervale, where there's been a significant amount of investment driven by local peak bodies. Also, in past episodes, Council has spoken about their built asset review, asking communities to take on the ownership of Council buildings and leasing Council land in a move to free up funds for Council. It seems this financial responsibility is too great for some communities to take on. We'll hear about some of these concerns in the next episode. Clear Valley Podcast. Clear Valley Podcast. You're listening. Clear Valley Podcast. Clear Valley Podcast. <laughs> Finally, to our community hidden gem. Well, he's not so hidden. In fact, he's very much a big deal on a national and international scale in the art world. Robert Alfie Hannaford is a self-taught realist artist noted for his drawings, paintings, portraits and sculptures. Primarily known as a portrait artist, with subjects including Joan Sutherland, Don Bradman, Paul Keating and Bob Hawke, he also produces landscapes, still life and nudes. The Don Bradman sculpture outside the Adelaide Oval, for example, that's Alfie's work. He even did a sculpture of the Queen. Alfie has lived an extremely full life from his humble beginnings growing up on a farm near Riverton to uh, becoming a cartoonist with the advertiser and then a professional artist at the early age of 20. He's travelled and worked in India, Europe and Africa and his list of awards is astounding. Hannaford now resides outside Riverton where he transformed a disused farmhouse and outbuildings into a dwelling and a studio. In 2007, he bought the old garage in Riverton and converted it into the Riverton Light Gallery where he and his wife, artist Alison Mitchell, showcase their artworks. This interview is a snapshot of Alfie's life. You will hear about his childhood, how he came to be painting Don Bradman and conversing at Windsor Castle with the Queen. But you'll also hear of his challenges, one being diagnosed with aggressive tongue cancer, which has also affected his speech. Enjoy the journey with Robert Alfie Hannaford. Can I ask you why Alfie? Alfie is a nickname I've had since I was four years old. And my uncle, my mother's brother used to call me Alfie Obbs from a radio program in the 40s called Mrs Obbs. It was a program, it was a bit like Dad and Dave, one of those old-fashioned radio programs. Alfie was the mischievous lad in this program and he used to call me Alfie Obbs (laughs) the crow for some reason. And I think it was because I had black hair down over my face and it stuck and when I went to school my teachers and everybody called me Alfie and even my parents. (laughs) Congratulations firstly on being a finalist in this year's Archibald Prize but this is nothing new because you have been a finalist 26 times I understand. So they tell me yeah. Can't can't keep up. (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel? About it all. It's always nice to be represented in the Archibald because it's so well known and well publicised. Or everybody who gets selected uh, has their work on public display for some months after the Archibald. So, for that reason, I'm always glad to be included. Included. And you've won the People's Choice Award three times. Yes. 
that's more important to you, the fact that the people have chosen your work? I think, yes. I'm always pleased that when and surprised when they choose my uh, when my work has been chosen. It's a bit of a moot point. Uh, there was an article the other day by the art critic on The Australian saying I should have won it and I should have won it years ago. But uh, because of my style of painting, it's overlooked by the judges who want to be more contemporary, I suppose, is a polite way of saying it. And so I've never expected to win it, knowing the, um, the fashion of the day. The way that you paint or the style that you paint isn't in the judge's favour? Yes, I would think I'm a realist painter. I think the judges, especially in the latter half of the 20th century, have decided that that represents the past. They don't want to be seen as non-contemporary, so they gravitate to strangeness. And if you only have to look at what they choose every year, there's always, you know, they push the boundaries as to what representation or portrait is even. That's not going to change the way that you you paint, though, is it? Oh, not in yes, no. <laughs> you do portraits as well as landscapes as well as sculptures. Yeah. My main focus is nature, this world around me. That can be a, a landscape or a, an object or a, I love painting nude bodies, animals, birds, plants, anything that interests me. I don't differentiate, I don't say I'm a portrait painter. I happen to love painting people because there are plenty of them around and I identify with people because I'm a person. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) But apart from that, I I get just as excited when I'm drawing my dog as when I'm drawing myself or another person. When did you realise... I'm actually pretty good at this. I really enjoy painting. Because you grew up on a farm, didn't you? I go back to childhood because Mm. I loved drawing from the time I was a very small child. I I drew when I was at school, primary school. The teachers used to get me to do the uh, backdrop for the school play and some teachers, even in primary school, used to get me to draw the map on the blackboard because they knew that I could draw it accurately. (laughs) You grew up on a family farm near Riverton and then you were sent to boarding school for a couple of years at Prince Alfred College Mm -hmm. and then you also then became a cartoonist at the Advertiser. Is that when you realised I could make a career out of this or Um, wasn't as simple as that? I guess when I left school I started to think well what am I going to do with my life? And I knew that I was, I loved drawing and painting, so I, I got a, my first job, a serious job. I mean, my first job was a builder's labourer because I was waiting to get a job in an advertising agency in those days. I'm talking about 1961. Advertising agencies were the ground in which budding artists often got experience because you had to draw for advertisements in the newspaper and magazines and things. So I was lucky enough to get a job in Clem Taylor advertising. I chose it myself because I'd met 
a friend of my brother's called Hugo Shaw, and he worked in this advertising agency, and he drew beautifully, I thought. I wanted to work with him because I knew that he and I were on the same plane in terms of our aspirations in the art world. That was to draw and paint as well as we could. So uh, that was my introduction. I was 17. From that day on, I knew that I wanted to draw and paint. And, Do you uh, remember the first painting that you sold and what it was? No. No, I can't remember the first painting I sold, but you see, we've got to go back a little bit further into childhood. I used to do drawings for the Sunday Advertiser in the children's section, and I started making money out of it. And in those days, we didn't have pocket money, but but I started making quite a bit of money because I used to win almost every week, and I think it was... One pound in those days, this was in the 50s, was first prize and 10 shillings was second prize. So I had a world of money that I used to keep. And I always knew that I could sell my work from that day on or I could make a living because I made a living. I had quite a world of money after a couple of years. How much money did you have? Oh, it was well over a hundred dollars. It was hundreds of dollars in those days. You wow. Know, that was before dollars. This is pounds. And how old were you when you were doing that? Ten. Nine and ten. So I knew that people would pay money for a good representation that I knew that I was capable of doing. So I started doing portraits when I was about twenty, nineteen after the advertising agency and I started drawing more seriously. Yes, I, I got even got commissions and everything at that age. But I started painting at the age of about 20, 21, and I started getting portrait commissions and uh, landscapes I was doing at that time too, and they were selling. You've painted some, some big names over the years, huge names. Paul Keating, Jane Sutherland, Tim Flannery, Bob Hawke, Don Bradman. The list goes on and on. What other high-profile people have you painted or sculptured over the years? Well, I've painted a few prime ministers and important people. You mentioned Don Bradman, Jane Sutherland. They happened when I was in my 20s. So I got off to a pretty good start when I mentioned that I'd painted Don Bradman or Joan Sutherland. <laughs> and how did they find out about you? You must have, you must have gained some well, serious Bradman, momentum quite quickly. Well, that's true. Uh, as I mentioned, I just started doing portraits as soon as I started painting seriously at the age of about 20. I worked at the Advertiser, age 19, as a cartoonist, and I got a job to paint one of the directors of the advertiser so that started and uh, word got around and I started getting portrait commissions from the university and everything at age 20, 21, 22 when Don Bradman he said he wanted to get a young artist from South Australia because he's living here to paint him and my name was 
he came up and contacted me and wanted me to paint his portrait. So the prestige of that, I suppose, led to other commissions. How did you feel about that, that Don Bradman contacted you and chose I, you? I didn't feel anything. To me, that was just like anybody. If I was asked to paint the Queen, <laughs> oddly enough, I did get that I know. Yes. But uh, it would have been the same. I, everybody is the same to me, whether they're so-called important. They're all human beings and they're all we're all the same uh, underneath, so to speak. Indeed, when I did meet the Queen <laughs> recently to do her sculpture, it was just like meeting another elderly lady and she was lovely and I wasn't the slightest bit nervous and I never have been when I've been in the company of so-called important people. Of course, they're no more important than anybody else. So you flew to London and she sat for you for how many sittings? I only had one. Only one sitting? (coughs) Yes. Is that normal, just for one sitting? No, it wasn't. I wasn't. When I was asked to do the sculpture... They contacted Buckingham Palace and the message came back that the Queen doesn't do sittings anymore. She was elderly, she was about 93 then. And uh, But I'd be welcome to go to the garden party and observe her. And I let them know that that's, <laughs> I don't work that way, I work from life. And I thought, well, that's the end of it. I wasn't going to go off and all the way to London just to watch her at a garden party so six months later through the South Australian attaché they let him know that I could have a 15 minute sitting with Her Majesty so (laughs) on the strength of that Alison and I flew off to London the sitting was to be at Windsor Castle so we went there and we had more than half an hour, as it turned out. But it was rigorous for a, an old lady. She had to stand and turn and because I had to draw her from every angle uh, for a sculpture. It was really quite uh, interesting. Do you talk to your subjects while you paint? Yes, usually. So what did you talk about? She asked me where I came from in her polite way and... A little bit like that, and I asked her if she remembered William Dargy, uh, not with, yeah, William Dargy painting her portrait. You know, I knew Dargy, you see, and she said, "Oh yes, as a matter of fact, I'm wearing the same brooch that I had on for that portrait." And indeed, there was a wattle brooch, so she had obviously thought, "Oh, Australian artist, I'll wear." It. And she remembered Dargy very well, and we chatted about that for a while. Did you feel an intense pressure, the fact that you only had a half-hour sitting with her when you usually have more than one, I mean, to get it right? No, I didn't. I I was grateful that she was very compliant. For instance, I asked if she'd take her hat off because I actually chose the dress. They brought out three dresses and I chose the one that I thought would be easiest to see for sculpture. And I asked her about to wear a hat and her, and her handbag because I wanted her in that normal, usual uniform <laughs> she wears. Then I asked her to take her hat off because I wanted to draw her without her hat. And the lady in waiting said, oh, no, she can't do that. We've just spent an hour doing her hair for this. Anyway, I kept on drawing and 
A few minutes later, she took her hat off, fluffed her hair up, and, you know, so she was very compliant. Good sport. Yeah, she was. (laughs) So once you finished and it was shown to the Queen, the finished product, did you receive any feedback from her? Well, only on... On, uh, we did a Zoom with the presentation. I presented her with a machette and she said, oh, nice to see you again. <laughs> so that's the only feedback I've had. <laughs> what an honour, But though. I did hear that through the attaché that he gave the Queen and the Duke my book. He claims that's what swayed her to allow me to have a sitting because the Duke particularly was interested in art and he was painting himself. He was still alive then, of course. This was just a couple of years ago. So it was his interest in art, I think, that swayed her to have the sitting. You had some influential mentors and you talked about them briefly in the early days, but you had some influential mentors along the way. Hans Heysen is one of them. Mm -hmm. And Ivor Heel. So even though you were self-taught, how influential were those mentors in your journey? Well, they were very important to me. I was brought up on a farm, and the only in a non-artistic family, I must say, um, we did, I mean, in terms of art, we had no paintings or anything in the house. Or, but my mother was very keen craftswoman, and she encouraged my drawing. But the only artist I'd ever heard of was Hans Heysen. Uh, because he was so well known, his prints were around in the 50s when I was growing up. And uh, down the track I met him, and he was an old man by then. But it was such a inspiration to me to meet him and show him my work, and he encouraged me. So that was terribly important because I, I think he's a wonderful man and artist. And uh, at about the same time I met Ivor Hill, who was... 20 or 30 years younger than Heisen. He was more of a mentor to me because he allowed me to take my work down to him and he offered his comments on it over the last 30 years of his life. So that was really important to me because he was uh, a man whose work I respected and he had terrific knowledge of the tradition that I was interested in in painting from life. So I learned a, a lot from him and uh, and I know that it was his inspiration that carried me through my early years. Well, you sculptured the Nadri woman and child uh, on the main street of Riverton here. So you've had quite a relationship with the First Nations people. Why is that so important to you? Well, as I mentioned, I was brought up on a farm here and... You know, there were no Aboriginal people around when I was a kid. And I remember one day driving in with my grandfather and he told me that he can remember when he was a kid where we were driving, he said he remembered the, some Aborigines camping in that riverbed. And it's not far from here. I was fascinated to think I must have been a child of about six or eight or and it dawned on me that Aboriginal people lived here before us. That fascinated me and has ever since. I used to love walking in the hills and I'd sit up there and I'd wonder what the Aboriginal people thought when they looked at that same landscape that I was looking at. 
And so when I got to 20 or so, I started looking up everything I could about the Nudgery tribe, and I read everything I could about the anthropologists and so on who travelled through the area and mentioned their names. And and then, um, so later, if other people were interested in following up the Nudgery tribe, Fran Knight and Adele Pring were writing a book about the Nudgery. I got involved with them on that. I did the front cover painting I did of the hills around here and I put the Aboriginal people in, in an imaginary way of how it might have been. Aboriginal culture has fascinated me ever since. So the way they lived their lives, close contact with nature, which was right up my alley because I felt that closeness to nature. So everything to do with their culture I wanted to find out and later I met more Aboriginal people and I've painted quite a number and drawn them and I've travelled through. I went up to Nepabunna up in the North Flinders, Mm -hmm. up to Central Australia and Western Australia working for Big Art, who had an interest in Aboriginal culture as well. And you've just done a portrait of Loacha O'Donoghue? Yes, I, I painted her for the National Portrait Gallery. She's been a great friend ever since. She came up for the opening of the Nudgery Sculpture. I was involved with her. I did a sculpture for the Aboriginal Military Service, the parade ground in Adelaide. The Aboriginal contribution, and I've been asked to do a sculpture which I'm working on now of Loacher for the a full size body sculpture for the Aboriginal Centre in North Terrace where the old hospital used to be. You've had a lot of successes with your career, but you've had some personal battles along the way. You were diagnosed with tongue cancer in 2006, and I understand it was quite aggressive. Mm. How was that for you, and did you use that as as part of your creative process as well, or healing process, I guess. Well, yes, it was quite a dramatic (laughs) period, that cancer, uh, and the treatment. I had radiotherapy and chemotherapy. I really faced the prospect of dying, and that's a wonderful prospect to face when you're still alive and relatively young. How old were you at the time? Oh, I was 61. I call that young. It is young. (laughs) Yes, yes. So I went through all the treatment and everything and came out relatively healthily, as I am now. (laughs) But it did leave me with speech problems and swallowing problems, which I still have to a certain extent. It helped me appreciate life that little bit more, I think, than I did previous to the cancer. It has affected the uh, visual apparatus, so to speak, as a result of the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy particularly. My carotid arteries were compromised and they have given me some problems with blood flow to the brain and that has affected me somewhat. So your vision? Yeah, my visual cortex which is on the right side of the 
the back of the brain. <coughs> so what impact is? Happened. So what does is it blurry so it or affects the uh, left side of your vision? So how have you got around that? With some difficulty, but I have got around it. And life itself, you appreciate your vision that, that little bit extra afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've coped with it by using a mirror a lot more, although I used to use a mirror a lot to help me get that objective vision previous to the, uh, to the uh, cancer. I can see on the left side by looking directly at it, so... <laughs> How did you come across that it. technique? Did someone well, give you I that advice? To, or? No, I've always mucked around with my eyes before my cancer anyway, looking upside down at things to get that objectivity. And in the mirror, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you look at someone you know well in a mirror, they look a bit different. Do you, have you noticed that? No, but I, you, will, I will do that. Well, I've, I've found that very helpful painting portraits to look at the person I'm painting in a mirror as well as because the eye gets used to the eyes get used to normal vision and if you look upside down or in reverse everything is changed and you see things that you overlook because your usual vision is taken for granted I mean if you look at the landscape upside down, say through your legs at the uh, sunset, you'll notice the colours are so much more interesting because it's a reverse of the normal vision and you see it more objectively. And I call that seeing, that's what one strives for when you're painting, that fresh vision as if you've never seen it before. Mm. And the reverse image does that for you to a certain extent. In 2007, you did a self-portrait following um, your radiation <coughs> and, and chemotherapy. Yes. How difficult was that to do? Or was it difficult? Because self-portraits no, it in itself would be... Cause no, no, that was when I had the, the tube. I had yes. Feed because of my swallowing problems, mm. I had to feed through a tube into my stomach. Yeah, I was just coming out of the treatment and I used to... I'd come out here, and I did it in the studio. Just it was my recovery, I suppose. I started to to want to experience life again after treatment. Just came out here and stood in front of the mirror and thought, "Ah, oh, let's go." And I started painting, and I've been painting ever since. <laughs> and doing self-portraits is that? Is there a an added difficulty for that because there's the objectivity and subjectivity of that mm. you're looking for. Indeed, it, it's a wonderful way of concentrating on the elements of painting. You know, that objectivity, subjectivity, nebulous line, it's a difficult one to traverse. And I've been talking about looking in a mirror mm. upside down. I'm always experimenting with my visual apparatus, so to speak. With a self-portrait, you can do that because you you don't have to worry about the sitter, how he's feeling or anything. You can do it in your own time and and spend as long as you like. So that's why I like painting self-portraits. Are you are you cancer-free? Now? Yes, I'm cancer-free. I'm very happy to be still able to work and live my life. <laughs> Alfie, 
What is the end game for you? Do you think you've reached the pinnacle of your career? Have you reached all your expectations? Or is there something else that you would love to create or paint? That's an interesting question. The end game. Look, I've always been interested, ever since I can remember, in what life was all about. And painting, in a way, has helped me in that respect. It puts you in touch in a way that's hard to find any other way, I think. puts you in touch with reality. If you draw or paint something, it reveals itself in a way that you'd never discover any other way. I think other people obviously don't. They find other ways. But that process fascinates me, and I'd love to continue because it's those moments when you're open and painting and you see things so clearly that to me is um, something special about that it's connection with nature or yourself or the wider world that means everything that's the process of painting and drawing for me well Alfie Hannaford, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and divulging just a small snippet of your life and what you've created and what you've experienced in your life. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Renowned artist Robert Alfie Hannaford. If you'd like to visit the Riverton Light Gallery, it's open on the last Sunday of every month from 11 till 3pm. That's it for another episode of the Clare Valley Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know if there are any issues or hidden gems you'd like to hear featured in the future. The Clare Valley Podcast is supported by the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. I'm your host, Annabelle Homer. I'll catch you next time.